Well, it is such a joy to be here this morning. Uh, Some of you may remember this time last year, my wife was in the hospital. She actually had an unexpected surgery uh, on uh, what is going to be Reformation Sunday last year. And so Randy preached on very short notice. Uh, He did a great job, uh, but I am delighted to be able to preach God's Word today as it is Reformation Sunday. I want to start this morning by reading a quote from a man that we will all come to know in just a moment. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. I did nothing. The word did it all. These words were spoken by Martin Luther in the wake of the Reformation. And many of you know that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a German monk, nailed 95 theses or propositions to a church door in Wittenberg. Luther posted these theses in Latin, which was the academic language of the day, signaling that Luther wanted an academic debate amongst his fellow uh, churchmen. With the advent of the printing press, a few folks in the town who could read Latin read Luther's theses and realized the bombshell that they were. So they took the theses down, they translated them into German, they had them printed, multiple copies And within a matter of days, Luther and his 95 Theses had gone viral in Wittenberg, Germany. The town was in uproar. The Reformation was on. And we think of the Reformation, we often think of faith. We think of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. We think, what does it mean to be saved And the Reformation recovered the precious doctrine that we are saved by faith alone. But at a more foundational level than that, the Reformation was about the Word of God. And it was about the role that the Word of God was to play in the life of the church. And God used Martin Luther as a reformer in his church, taking God's bride back to God's Word and not the traditions of man. Well, today in our passage, we meet another reformer. We meet Ezra. We've been studying Ezra for uh, a while now. We're in Ezra chapter 7, and this is the first time that we have met Ezra. And up to this point, the point of Ezra has not been about people, but about God rebuilding his temple. But more importantly, we're going to see that God is far more interested in rebuilding his people than a temple. And so Ezra arrives on the scene in about 458 B.C., which is about 60 years after the temple was built at the end of chapter 6. So between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's about 60 years. And as we just heard, chapter 7 opens with a genealogy. And that genealogy, again, may be monotonous to us, but it's important to the text. 
It's telling us that Ezra was a priest. But he wasn't just any priest. Ezra was able to trace his priesthood line back to Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron helped Moses lead the exodus out of Israel. In what follows, the story will focus on Ezra. And so the story of Ezra begins by highlighting his specific pedigree as a priest. But chapter 7 wants to focus our attention on Ezra the man. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 will focus on Ezra the priest and what he did. Chapter 7 wants us to focus on Ezra the man. And look at verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And then look at the very end of verse 28. We read the same thing. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And so as we are introduced to Ezra, we have on one end a bracket that God's hand was on him. And at the other end, we have another bracket that says God's hand was on Ezra. Ezra was a man set apart by God to do an important work in his people's life. Ezra had a special blessing from God. And that's seen in the relationship between Ezra and Artaxerxes, the king. Artaxerxes sent Ezra and a second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes gave Ezra a letter that gave him significant influence in the land. He was to reform the land. Yes, the temple had been built, but 60 years had passed and Israel had gotten relaxed in how they were keeping the law. And so Ezra is sent to come in and reform and shore up Israel. And so Artaxerxes trusted Ezra enough to give him such significant authority in the land. He sent Ezra back to inquire about the temple and make sure that worship was in fact being carried out in a prescribed manner. And again, Artaxerxes is like Darius before him. Artaxerxes is concerned that there is proper worship in Jerusalem, not because he is a true worshiper of the Lord necessarily, but because he is a politically savvy man. And he wants as many gods as possible being worshipped so that those gods can then intercede for him and his family after him. So we see those motives there in our text. But he sends Ezra back in verses 11 through 26. We, we get a picture of what this letter is all about. And the letter basically gave Ezra the right to do three things. In verses 12 through 20, you can read that Ezra is given the authority to lead this second expedition back to Jerusalem. So Ezra has been authorized as someone that has been sent from Persia. He has the authority of the king to lead this group back. And Ezra is authorized not only to lead people, but to lead the silver and gold back to Jerusalem. So Ezra is authorized to, to lead the expedition back. And then we see in verses 21 through 24 that Ezra is given financial provision by the king. Ezra is authorized to draw checks from the royal treasury. 
Now, Ezra can take up to 7,500 pounds of silver. In case you were wondering, that's a lot of silver. He could take 600 bushels of wheat, 600 gallons of wine and oil. Ezra's given a pretty uh, expensive allowance here that he can take and bring and continue funding the temple. And so Artaxerxes gives Ezra plenty of financial provision. And then finally, Ezra is given the authority to set up magistrates and judges. Again, Ezra is authorized to tighten up the helms here in Jerusalem and make sure that law and order is being carried out. The interesting thing is that Artaxerxes authorizes Ezra to judge based on God's law, not Artaxerxes' law. So he's given them a significant amount of religious freedom, but Ezra is to make sure that there is in fact order being carried out, that God's laws are being followed in the land. But as I said, chapter 7 wants to focus our attention on Ezra the man, a man on whom God had his hand. And that's why verse 10 is critical for our understanding this morning. It's critical to understand Ezra the man and the rest of the book of Ezra. Ezra is a reformer and he will do mighty things. But Ezra is first and foremost a man that is devoted to the word of God. The Reformation in the 1500s was a movement that centered on God's word. It was a Bible movement. And one of the objections that the Roman Catholic Church had to Luther and the other reformers was that common, ordinary people, people in the pew, just aren't smart enough to understand God's word. They need the priest, they need the church to tell them what to believe. Well, the reformers wholeheartedly disagreed with that premise. They believed that God's word was clear. And so when asked the question, how can a person be saved and reconciled to God, the reformers believed that God's word clearly answered that question to the point that ordinary, common people in the pew should have access to God's word, to read it, to know it. And so this truth, that the main issues in God's word are in fact clear enough for everyone to understand is behind verse 10. What God requires you to know and do from His Word is clear. Ezra can study the Word of God because it's understandable, because it's clear. Ezra can obey the Word of God because it's clear. And Ezra can, in fact, teach the Word of God because it's clear. And so there is opposition today to God's Word, just like there was opposition in the time of the Reformation. God's enemies have always tried to take what is clear and muddy it up and say it's confusing and make you dependent on them. For example, we're told today that it's not so clear what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman. In fact, we're told that that is so unclear that we need the help of scientists to tell us What makes a man a man and a woman a woman? Friends, we need to return to this Reformation principle of sola scriptura. That God's word alone is our infallible, 
rule of life. That when the Bible speaks, God speaks. We must trust that God's word is clear in the matters of faith and practice. So we need to look at Ezra. We need to follow in his footsteps. And you need to set your heart to study the word of God, to obey the word of God, and to teach the word of God. So in our time remaining this morning, I want to focus on verse 10, and I want to focus on those three things. First, study the word of God. We read in verse 10 that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Ezra had set his heart. Set is a building word. You set objects in place. You set the cornerstone in place. It's firm. Well, figuratively, you can set your face towards something as well. In Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel is instructed to enact or kind of play act a judgment against Israel. And so God tells him, you're to take an iron griddle and you're to place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. So the prophet Ezekiel is called to, to set his face against this griddle as an act of judgment. And so to set your face or to set your heart or to set your body towards something is a, a moral or a spiritual act. When Ezekiel set his face against the city, he was not morally or neutrally, uh, morally or spiritually neutral in that moment. And so Ezra, as he is setting his heart, he's not morally or spiritually neutral here. He's making a firm, conscious decision to devote himself to the law of the Lord and his thoughts, his actions, and his attitudes. Again, heart in the Bible refers to the whole person. It refers to the inner man, the the mind and the will. It refers to what you know and what you love. And so Ezra is setting his whole self to this task. He's wholly engaged with his mind and his will and his affections. And it's important before we recognize his practice, that we recognize his posture. That before Ezra begins to actually study the word of God, he actually sets his heart to study the word of God. And so you this morning, we need to set our heart on the study of God's word. And before Ezra begins to study, he assumes a proper posture to God's word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for who can know a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And so as we think about following Ezra, as we think about assuming his posture before his practice, we think about positioning ourselves under God's word as authoritative as dependent creatures needing God himself by his spirit to help us understand. So this is why, for example, I pray before I preach. Sometimes we assume the task of studying God's word and we do so without consciously setting our heart in the right place. 
sometimes that assumption is just because we, we just forget. But sometimes it's because we think that we can understand God's word on our own, that we are sufficient in our own strength to understand God's word. But Ezra sets his heart on God's word. And that's the posture we must have. And you may remember from our psalm series this summer that the word law in the Bible has, has a wide range of meanings. Sometimes we think of law, we think of uh, the Ten Commandments, and that's true. But law, as Will, when he preached in Psalm 119, helped us see that, that law can refer to, to, yes, the Ten Commandments, but also the whole instruction of God's Word. It's the whole counsel of God. And so Ezra is determined to study God's Word, all of it. Notice our text doesn't say that Ezra set his heart to simply know God's Word. It says Ezra set his heart to study God's Word. He peppers the text with questions. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says that Ezra is a scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord. A uh, another way you could translate that is that Ezra was a man learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord. Now Ezra is like a prosecuting attorney coming to God's words with questions. He's focusing on the details, the very words of God's word. He's not content to stay in the shallow end. He's taking a deep dive into God's Word. He doesn't want to rely on yesterday's information about God. He wants his daily bread. He's digging into God's Word. The Word of God is like a treasure map. And that's not original to me, but I think it's a helpful illustration. God's Word is like a treasure map. And if you want to find the treasure, then well, you need a map. Otherwise, you just wander around, have no idea where you're going. You enjoy the breeze, you can enjoy the sunset, but you're just going nowhere. God's word is a treasure map. And you have to understand the symbols on the map. You have to know which way is north, which way is south. You have to know where the mountain ranges are, where the valleys are. The goal, of course, is not the, the map itself, but it's the treasure that the map is leading us to. That's the goal. And this is exactly what Jesus says to us in the New Testament. Jesus in John 17, 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you. Remember, Jesus is praying here in this moment. He's talking to God the Father. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The point of the treasure map is that it leads to Jesus. The point of Ezra studying the words of God is to find God. And that's why it's essential for us to study our Bibles. There are many people today who, quote, know Jesus. You know, yeah, I know Jesus. He was a good teacher, he was a good moral teacher. Yeah, I, I know Jesus. He, he was like the perfect man. Like he like always believed in himself. You know, if I could just believe in myself like Jesus believed in his self, that I'd be pretty good. Whatever that means. I, I know Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I know him. He, he was a political activist. You know, he, he came in to, to overthrow the social economic systems of the day. Yeah, I know Jesus. 
All of these portraits fail to understand God's word. They fail to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. They fail to understand that the very details of the text are pointing to Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We must set our hearts to study God's word. And so I just ask you this morning, do you have a time and place set aside for you to study God's word? We just encourage you, pick that time and pick that place ahead of time. It will make it a whole lot easier. Ezra set his heart to study the word of God. He devoted himself to knowing God as God has revealed himself. But as Ezra investigates God's word, he understands that revelation is given for transformation. Mere mental engagement is not the goal. It's mental pursuit that manifests in obedience, that reveals itself in transformed living. So Ezra purposes to do the word of God, to obey the word of God. The word do or to do in in Hebrew can also be translated as to make or to practice. It's the most common way to refer to something that describes an action. And that's the point in our passage is we are moving from the cognitive to the action sphere, okay? Ezra is not just learning, but he's doing what he has learned. And Ezra's practicing God's word. He's making a part of his daily life. This is the same word that Moses, is used, that Moses uses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. Moses says, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. And that's the pattern that Moses gave to the Israelites before he died, is hear God's word and then do it. And this is the pattern that Ezra is following. Study God's word and then do it. And notice the connection there. The word and is all important. To study and to do it. These things are connected. They're inseparable. They're like two sides of a coin. You can distinguish them. You can flip it over, but but you can't separate them. They belong together. There are those that try to separate these two, knowledge and obedience. They make obedience an unnecessary part of the Christian life. They make grace cheap. They say things like, well, just, just pray this prayer and you'll be good. Or if you just believe You'll be okay. In their mind, you can go on to live and do whatever you want. As long as you prayed that prayer, you're good. All you have to do is say that Jesus is Lord. You never actually have to live like Jesus is Lord. Friends, that's cheap grace. It's vigilante Christianity. And it's unbiblical. We cannot separate True biblical knowledge of God, studying His Word and then doing His Word. But we have to be be careful here because that order is important. The order is study and then obey. If you reverse that order, then you fall off on the ditch on the other side of the road. That ditch is legalism. If you start stressing obedience before you've actually studied God's word, then you're going to end up walking down a path telling everybody else that this is the path that God says to be on and when in fact God may not have even said to be on that path. You've obeyed before you have studied God's word. 
As the reformers would say, we are saved by faith alone. Absolutely. Our obedience contributes nothing to God counting us righteous in Christ. But they would also say that faith is never alone. Faith is always followed by good works. When you see Jesus on the cross paying for your sins, realizing that it is your sins that put him on the cross to suffer the wrath of God, and you know that God is counting you righteous in that act, your greatest desire is to love God, is to follow him. It's not to live however you want to live. It's to say, yes, Lord, show me how to live. This is what James says in his book. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, well, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and then goes away and forgets what he was like. For some of us, we don't have a knowledge problem. We know what the Bible says. We know what it commands of us. We have an obedience problem. And so I ask you this morning, is there something in your heart that you have not surrendered to the Lord? Is there something that you know you ought to stop doing that you're continuing to do? And if so, surrender that to the Lord. Study God's Word and then obey it. Simply knowing the Bible is not enough if it only stays in your mind. True knowledge, knowing God the Father and Jesus, always leads to transformed living. And so Ezra, as a true reformer, was committed to knowing and obeying God's Word. Not only does true Christ-centered study of God's Word lead to obedience, but it also leads to proclamation. It leads to telling other people about God's Word. And so that's the final thing we see, that Ezra set his heart to teach God's statutes and rules in Israel. And after Ezra had set his heart to study and obey God's Word, then he purposes to teach God's Word. And to teach literally means to make someone accustomed to. It's to show them the ropes. It's to equip someone in the truth. It's to give them the right information but it's then also to show them what to do with that information. When you first become a parent, you have no idea what you're doing. I know. I've only been a parent for over a year. I still have no idea what I'm doing. But when you first become a parent, you're totally unaccustomed to what it means to be a parent. And you need in that moment someone who is accustomed who has learned what it is to be a parent, who has practiced being a parent to come to you and show you, hey, do this. Don't do that. But go this way instead. You need someone to teach you what it means to be a parent. You need someone to teach you what it means to follow God, to study His Word, how to apply it. And friends, we are all called to be teachers. We are all called to tell other people about Jesus Christ. 
And if you tell someone about Jesus Christ, you better be sure that you're teaching someone in that moment. Because Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's a theological statement to say Jesus Christ is to teach. And we are instructed to teach people about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And this is where the clarity of Scripture becomes so critical for us to understand. This is where what the Reformers were fighting for in the Reformation becomes so important for us this morning. Because we know there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. The inspired Apostle Peter even admitted that. He said, some of Paul's sayings are head scratchers and they're hard to understand. Ezra was a scribe. He was a professional Bible student and teacher. God gives his church pastors as gifts to the church to help clarify those harder parts of the Bible. To help show how the whole Bible fits together, even those hard and and ambiguous places. And they're there to, to show you how the Bible applies to your life. So yes, God gives Ezra the scribe and he gives pastors in the New Testament. But that exempts none of us from being a Bible teacher. And again, this is why the clarity of Scripture is so important. Is that the main things in the Bible are clear. The main things are the main things, in fact, so that anyone can read them and understand this is the main thing. I love the way the Baptist faith and message puts it. It says the word of God is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who himself is the focus of divine revelation. So yes, there may be things that are difficult to understand, but the main things are clear. God is its author, salvation is the goal, and truth is all throughout. And in case you get confused, all Scripture is pointing to Christ. So if you're in the old, it's pointing forward to Christ. If you're in the new, it's pointing back to Christ. Those are the main things. Scripture is a perfect treasure map leading us to Christ. But we must first study the Word. And then we must obey the Word. And then we must teach the Word. If we get that order wrong, we end up in a bad place. Jesus illustrates the disaster that happens when you reverse this order or you confuse this order. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Uh, follows a, a similar pattern there. He says, you have heard it said, and then he says various statements. And one of them, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Jesus is quoting from the Pharisees. Jesus is quoting from the Bible teachers of the day who are then going around and telling people, this is what God's word says and this is what you are to do. Well, the problem, of course, is that God's word never actually says what the Pharisees says that it says. They didn't pay attention to the words of God. 
Leviticus 19.18 says to love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say anything about hating your enemy. That's added by the Pharisees. God's word doesn't give that command. They lowered the standard of the law. Because you know what? It's a lot easier to hate your enemies than to love them. And so Jesus calls them out. He calls them to repentance. They didn't study God's law carefully, and therefore they didn't actually obey God's word, and therefore they actually taught people to disobey God's word. It was a disaster, and Jesus had to correct it. So this is why the order is important. And I want to speak just for a moment to the men in the room. Particularly, I want to address the dads in the room. Men and dads, God has tasked you with teaching your family about God from his word. If you have children, you have a very short window into your kids' lives. I blinked and Ellen Rose was one. 17 years left. Don't pawn off your responsibility to instruct your kids in the matters of God's word. It is not primarily the church's job to teach your children. It is your job to teach your children. The church wants to rally and support you in that, but it is your duty. And if you're not teaching them, if you're not diligently explaining God's word to them, then someone else is teaching them. The world is sure to seize every moment to teach your children. Every show, every song, every YouTube ad, every conversation at school, every book read, every meme liked is teaching something. And it is our job to teach our families how to think biblically about the world. Not to disengage, not to totally be secluded, but how to think critically and biblically about God's word in this world. Elwin Rose is a master copier. She is quick to imitate sounds and actions that she sees in us. And even if it is not your words instructing men, it's your lives that are instructing. It's making them accustomed to something. And that is good news for us because there are moments that we blow it. And in the moments that we blow it, we have the opportunity to teach our kids about God's redeeming grace. As we approach them and apologize, admit that we were wrong, and even in our failures, point them to Jesus. And so I know for uh, most of us, the reality is that moms spend the bulk of the time with the kids. And so remember too, moms, that even when the dishes are piled high, the laundry's backed up, and the floors are dirty, you are teaching your kids. And for those of us who are not parents, who are the people that God has placed in your life that need to be taught the good news of the gospel? Who need to be taught about the great grace of God in Jesus? Will you be faithful to them? One writer said this of the Reformation. The Reformation in the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible. Yet it set the world aflame. We need the courage of men like Martin Luther and Ezra today. Ezra was a mighty man, a great reformer. 
did many remarkable things in his life. And we'll see those in the weeks upcoming. But more than what he did, it's who he was. He was a man devoted to God's word. His conscience was held captive to God's word, if we can borrow that and apply it to Ezra. So let us return to our Reformation roots, trusting the authority and the clarity of God's word. And may the Lord send revival to our lands again. But let that revival begin in your life as you study God's word, as you obey God's word, and as you teach God's word to others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for people that have been examples to us, Lord, not infallible and perfect examples, but people that ultimately point us to your son, Jesus. Father, that is our great desire, that we would be more like him, that we would know him truly from your word, that we would grow to love him deeply and to be transformed in our lives. Father, we pray for opportunities this week to share with someone else about your grace. Father, help us to be faithful when you open those doors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.